0: Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lip Poetry Podcast Season 2. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. In today's episode, we'll be gathering around the fragile, flickering light of a poem by Mark Tredenick. This poem is like a stubborn candle that's only just holding back the encroaching darkness of environmental disaster. The quivering defiance of its flame... Sitting above a hot, growing pool of wax calls out to us. It asks us not only to savour and cherish the light that remains, but to drop to our knees in a state of urgent contrition. This poem is breathtaking in its beauty, in its musicality, and in its celebration of the natural world. Yet it is also completely overwhelming in its prophetic outlook. The poem, titled Litany and Allergy, is in many respects an allergy because it's a lament over the current state of our blasted, pillaged and dying earth. And it is very much a litany because of its reverent and persistent petition for help. I just adore this poem, and I'm very happy to say that Mark Tradenik will be joining us in a moment to discuss the poem. But before I introduce our guests, let's take a listen to the poem, shall we? may I introduce you to Litany and Allergy by Mark Tredenig, a poem originally commissioned by Red Room Poetry.
1: My name is Mark Tredenig, and this is my poem, "Litany, an elegy for the children. Each tongue It has been wisely said, speaks galaxies, and when a language dies, a world, and all that has no other being elsewhere, fails. A silence falls where there was song, where there was something known no other lyric grasps. Every species is a world of sound, a solid form of silence said, a body of thought. And with each dialect drowned, each lexicon beached, the world that is a universe of all these knowing realms knows less, the living world grows less alive. And we, who cannot find a patch of ground, we do not need to claim, a wildness we do not need to tame, fall deeper alone, the thicker we crowd the biomes, the thinner we shave the ways there are of being on this earth, and thought that flew like shorebirds once around the globe, refusing a single idiom or tide, idles mean abstracted streets and lives off scraps the sated throw away. Our words are made of plastic now and end up in the sea, where stocks of wisdom, overfished and toxic with cliché, dwindle and cease. So what will there be left for us to say, by way of remorse? What elegy, excuse or prayer, when the sands along subtropic shores have grown so warm that no more male turtles hatch and make it to the sea? And who will we be, our language atrophied a little more, when Norfolk parakeets run out of trees to roost and fledge? And what will we grasp any more of sin when all the devils that we know have slipped the earth? And who will teach desire, grace, or passion, poise when nothing burns the forests of the night? And when the last savanna elephant has scattered all the bones, what will we recall of grief when our turn comes to let our dear ones go? And how will all the plastic that will never go extinct school the seas in sanctity? What sense will awe begin to make when no blue whales swim the world around? And will our minds remember how to slow, how speeding, chill, when all the whale sharks have passed? Sea otter, snow leopard, curlew, bee. Divinity will be burlesque Joy will be a sham when all these bodhisattvas of the floating, hungry, thrumming world have left. O person of the forest, orangutan, who might be any one of us who came down once from boughs, teach us, while there are still woods to be, how to be the woods, not just the trees.
0: So welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast. Mark Tredenick is a celebrated Australian poet, essayist and teacher. His most recent collection of poems, Walking Underwater, was published in June of this year. His many other works of poetry and prose include A Gathered Distance, Almost Everything I Know, Igret in a Ploughed Field, Blue Wren Cantos, Fire Diary, The Blue Plateau, and the Little Red Writing Book. Since 2003, Mark has published over 200 works, poems, essays, reviews, papers, and books. For 25 years, he's taught poetry and writing at the University of Sydney, where he was poet in residence in 2018. He is a beloved teacher of writing, literature, and ecology, and he's mentored many writers into print. His many honours include two of the world's foremost poetry prizes. Montreal and the Cardiff. In 2020, Mark was also awarded the Order of Australia Medal for services to literature and education. So welcome, Mark, to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Good
1: to be here, James.
0: That's great. It's really excellent to have you here on the show. And it was thrilling, actually, to get the opportunity to work on this particular poem, put it to, to music, and to see it sort of bloom into into the state it's it's got to. I just wanted to start, Mark, with maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about yourself, about your poetry, how you came to write this particular poem. It's a, it's a very interesting poem, I think.
1: Sure, James, and thanks for the grace of your words about uh, the poem. So, you find me here on Gunnagara country, uh, along the windy River, uh, in what many listeners would know as Bowral, to southwest of Sydney. I'm... Uh, I'm a New South Welshman, I suppose. My name is Cornish on my father's side, so I've got ministers' oratory in my blood and hymns, Methodist hymns. And I've got on my mother's side uh, German common sense and musicality, actually, a bit of Goethe. And well, my mum's a musician and a, a schoolteacher. My parents are both elderly now and I'm uh, lucky still to have them around. They live quite close to me here actually in barrel too. Yeah. Dad's approaching 90 uh, now so yeah that's where I am now and I I, I grew up in uh, one of the suburbs of Sydney. Um, we have an Epping as well, that's where I grew up. Uh, it's in the seat of Benelong, a famous seat in Australian politics actually and the kind of Person Howard was for good and ill. John Howard. It was his seat. Is very much the kind of Australia I think I grew up in, um, and the way that seat has changed, which uh, he lost, of course, when he lost office, is also the way Australia has changed. Part of Sydney has become uh, has become heavily occupied by uh, Indian and Chinese folks and. Uh, there's now the Macquarie Technology Park in Macquarie University just up up the road. It's not the kind of Bible Belt, uh, lower middle class, very white Australia that I grew up in without very much sense of whose country it really was in the first place. So I grew up among turpentines and sandstones. That's my dog in the background. Uh, Dante, Dante. A <laughs> it's poet. giving us a bit of ambience. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm I'm approaching 60, James, so I, I can't believe it. Last time I looked, I was still just 21, but um, it's funny how it goes. I do feel I age in certain ways, in others not at all, and I, I think poetry in certain ways can kind of keep you young, or it keeps your soul young, or it keeps you in track with your soul's age, which is both ancient and about 13, I think, <laughs> at the same yeah. time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I find that fascinating. You uh, mentioned that you have a Methodist uh, background.
1: It's my grand, my grandfather James was uh, Wesley. His name was Wesley.
0: Oh. Okay. Yes.
1: So, you know, if they christen you Wesley Tridenick, you don't have any choice. You know, you can. It's interesting that you hit upon that, and interesting that I men- mentioned it. I guess it does help a reader understand some of what goes on in my work.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because I I think there are certain sort of maybe even Christian allusions in the language of the poem itself. I mean, the fact that it's called a litany analogy is a, a, a clear cue there. What also interests me is what I find with your poetry in particular is its musicality. And, you know, in particular in this poem, I think there's a really rich use of things such as alliteration and assonance, which we'll probably touch upon later. Um, but I'm wondering if that's actually partly connected to your mother's music and this background of hymns and because you know how does a poet actually develop that ear or that love or that musicality? And it seems like you you gravitate towards that in your own writing. So would you say that there is a, you know, a heritage there a um, is that of the genesis of of those qualities yeah for
1: for certain these things are always somewhat mysterious of course aren't they like i uh, there's no question there's music in the family i also grew up with my mother's mother in the house and my grand grandma rachel and grandma's entire she played the piano a lot in the house and her entire repertoire was the hymn book. that was it like she knew no music that wasn't church music both of her daughters, one of whom was my, my mother, have gone on to be quite sophisticated uh, musicians, but still sacred music is at the heart of their their practice. My mother's an organist and a conductor, and chorister, and she still, she conducts the U3A choir down here in, uh, in in Bowerall. But, you know, I so I grew up. It, it was, as I said in a recent interview, it, it's not strange for me. The, uh, the idea of sermons is not a strange, that's a familiar thing and also what teachers do to prepare for class uh, and also the idea of Bach uh, being played in the next room and singing harmony and thinking rhythmically and we all we all had instruments too I I played the cello Um, we had not much choice in the matter I love the cello very much in fact someone once Linda Rogers a Canadian poet with whom I travelled in Canada after the Montreal prize um, said to me when I mentioned that thing about the cello she said now I get it. (laughs) She said I get the long lines the long kind of bowings and the baritone kind of uh, voice uh, and the rhythm. So look, uh, poetry in a way for me is the discourse that refuses the reductive. It won't allow uh, apprehension or expression to be reduced to to one thing or abstract right, yeah. so I always resist yep. simple explanations. Uh, and I
0: assume too that your style over the years has um, morphed and changed and evolved in, in different ways as you've um, added more strings to your bow to use to that analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: certainly. It's funny that sort of it happens to you, doesn't it? As a creative, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm dedicated to not plagiarizing myself mostly. Uh, but, but, you know, that, that means that I, I want to find fresh ways to say things line by line. But mm. there, <clears throat> there are moves that we learn to make, which are our sort of signature, uh, I, I suppose. And one, one thing that has come on, James, actually, in my writing, if you look from the first collection, which was Fire Diary, to uh, Walking Underwater, uh, which is my fourth book collection you'll see through particularly the last two books a gathered distance and walking underwater a lot more work that that is blank verse um Mm. a lot of iambic pentameter litany you'll have picked up is actually Mm. um uh heptameter it's Mm. it's pretty iambic so it's got one of the things that that works through it which is beautifully sort of echoed in that music you've put underneath it uh is like a left hand it's like the left hand on the piano uh like what do we call that like an obligato kind of Mm. holding together what doesn't want to hold together it's kind of holding coherently a uh a chaos that wants to to break out
0: yeah which i think takes us perhaps into the the heart of some of the themes you're trying to sort of sort of hone in on there though that tension between the rhythm and the chaos that's about to sort of hmm. uh, explode on the stage um it's 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 really it's, i mean it's a fascinating poem and you know i know on a phone conversation to me you actually mentioned there's some interesting qualities in the actual structure um and of course i'm coming in on this with a blank slate and i suppose that would be an interesting place to start uh with this with the structure and how the structure is um Set out and how it actually maybe uh, lends itself to the meaning, reinforces the meaning of the poem, what you're trying to do with it. Um, all I, c- I could say, what I did detect, um, and this is as a reader, of course, creating my own meaning, I suppose, but I did see a movement, and I'm not sure if this is a part of the, the actual structure, but from language to song to thought to action. That's what I was seeing in the progression, but I could be really um, missing the mark there, I'm not sure. But anyway, over to you structure you've already told us a little bit about yeah, rhythm
1: so it's uh, in my mind what it is I said heptameter before I mean hexameter so six six beats per line um, sustained for I don't know I haven't actually ever counted the lines it feels like it's about 40 or something um, and the poem as you mentioned at the outset was a poem commissioned by the Red Room Poetry Company uh, for a series called Extinction Elegies Uh, and I was there at the ground floor, well not quite at the ground floor, the thing derived from some some research work at uh, Durham University Uh, and they partnered with the Red Room and then uh, Tamron spoke to me quite early on about how we might do it and which poets we might uh, include and of course then the other the other poets had written their pieces, or so she said, and I hadn't. I'm always running late with these things. So I then wrote this thing, and I didn't write quite what I'd intended to write, which was that I might dwell upon one animal that was facing extinction. The reason why I didn't is because I'd become quite arrested by uh, the work actually that Red Room and others are doing. Curly Saunders, the Australian uh, indigenous uh, poet and storyteller had been curating some work at Red Room on the conservation of indigenous languages in their poetic mm. expression. So those ideas were, were on my, my mind and the thing that gets the poem going is the thought expressed in the opening line which says of course each tongue it has been wisely said speaks galaxies so there's six beats. I was working quite strong uh, rhythmic uh, um, like metrics through those years his poem was written in 2017 or 18 somewhere around there um, so I begin I began in my mind with uh, with exploring extinction in the first place as the extent what is lost all that's lost when human cultures particularly languages uh, are lost thinking of, of you know say say uh indigenous languages which uh, are un- under threat here and many have been lost in the world but also then more generally which is where the poem goes into what happens when a more humane idiom uh, when a lyric discourse in which humanity and mystery are kept alive what happens when that gets lost and every second word on television is impacted Um, or facilitate uh, or whatever.
0: Yeah, it it certainly made me think about that connection between life and language. That life is in some ways an an embodiment of language that, you know, it expresses a message in the way we... You know, if you go back to the Christian message of words becoming flesh, this embodiment. And so, yeah, on one level I read the poem very directly, especially in the opening in some ways, uh, related to... Our physical world, with its um, creatures in it and all that sort of stuff, but it really sort of cascaded from there into cultures and and language and uh, a bunch of other stuff that I thought was really fascinating. And again, I'm only really sort of I'm doing a disservice to probably what you you were thinking here. Um, But yeah, I'd really be keen to hear about that connection between language, life, what you were thinking.
1: <laughs> well, in in here's how I understood it, James. I think in the beginning I was using uh human languages, human discourses and culture more broadly uh, almost as a metaphor for animals animal species and then when I touched on the animal species they stand in the poem I think as an equal metaphor for the human ones and what underlies that is that we're all Connected, that you know, the the loss of an animal species means about the same kind of tragedy uh, and and loss of value in the world uh, as as the loss of an uh, an idiom or more more broader language or a culture. Um, Then the poem moves on, having reached that point where I use the line about uh, our our words are made of plastic now and end up in the sea. Uh, which is of course a a political moment really though lyrically turned which plays of course on the idea of plastics in the sea and that terrible uh, pollution all that's uh, all that's put at risk all the life including our own that's put at risk by that but uses that also as a metaphor for the plasticization of language for the flight of kind of humanity. But that's why it's in the poem. And I think the the you know, the, core, the the core, the out, outcomes, to use some of the language, are connected here. You know, what we do to our language, we do to each other. What we do to each other, we tend to do to land uh, and to the animals in the land. It's a kind of exploitive Right, an exploitive or instrumental uh, attitude that one that one takes in all those arenas, and it amounts to the same thing, which is the tragedy of terrible loss and all of the impoverishment that that causes.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I get that sense of the homogenising um, of different elements coming together and being pressed into like hmm, this loss of culture because things are become there's a sameness that, in that way which I suppose speaks to our sort of industrialised way of, you know, exploiting the earth. And, um, you know, you talk about biomes and really implying the the stripping back of the diversity of biomes. So what we see in the physical is then reflected also in the the cultural. You relate shorebirds with ideas, human ideas, of course. Yeah, so I find that connection really fascinating. So this is clearly pressing some buttons on, I imagine, things that you're quite passionate about or concerns you have when you're looking at culture, our culture in particular. Do you you want to talk about what was going on there with you? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean... Big ideas, I know,
1: but... Yeah, Um, well, actually, you know, at the end of... I've written a couple of things uh, lately, pieces of prose, uh, essays, that capture a number of these concerns uh, of mine. One I published in Eureka Street, uh couple of years ago uh and i called it uh i am nobody who are you which is the emily dickinson uh, poem and that's about th- the idea behind that and the, the context for that is a kind of rather in my mind shrill discourse about identity about appropriation things of great importance argued about so so shrilly that it that the, the uh, conversation seemed hypocritical to me anyway my point is in that essay there is something uh deeper than identity and what it is we struggle to find words for but it's been the purpose of spiritual spiritual disciplines uh wisdom literatures uh, and poetry and literature and the other arts to attempt to honor it and that you might call it the self an identity is a lesser thing. The level of the self of course each of us is at the same time in my mind both unique and absolutely equal because we're all equal in our uniqueness. It seems to me very important that we keep a literature alive that performs that function, that keeps resonating. That that
0: sense of solidarity and connectedness that we have as a human family and yet It also celebrates this uniqueness i mean it's interesting because you know it seems to me our culture today that you know the dilemma we face is that you know there is debate around things like identity politics but it's such a shallow debate often where people establish their camps and you know aren't actually willing to put much energy into really thinking through and you're saying that we're going deeper here than identity this is not just about identity this is at a, at a more spiritual level and certainly that was one of the questions I had you had for you because the, the poem you know does seem quite spiritual um and I suppose I, I even have some questions of it does that have um implications about you as well like as a person like uh, are you do you meditate or is this is something of you wrapped up in the poem? Yeah.
1: I I think um, a friend of mine once said years ago. He said, "Mark, you and I, are men of a religious disposition." <laughs> <Which> <laughs> I think is quite right. Like I actually, the the other thing that I wrote recently, I have an essay at the back of um, Walking Underwater, which actually speaks to some concerns i have about the attempt to it seems to me colonize literature for politics for political purposes and even when i like the political outcomes i hate the colonization because it's not it's not right that the politics poetry uh performs and we need it to perform is a refusal of stereotypical conceptions of each other and stereotypes belong in some categories but poetry actually insists that no to to live well with each other we must live uh, in a place that's got some connection to our uh the thing i was talking about before that, that the kind of uniqueness and also to some sense of the eternal and 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 the, the, that, w- that which is mysterious
0: yeah but i imagine as a, as an academic that's and a poet that's not necessarily an easy line to take because well in academic circles and 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 in po- some poetry circles as well i mean there is a materialism is very much um, a central tenet for a lot of people, and uh, yeah, so credence towards considering aspects that go beyond materialism to ask questions um, that perhaps can't be answered is is not necessarily a comfortable. No, no, it no, no, leaves no, you no. open for um, criticism and all sorts of things.
1: And what what what's hardest to resist, James, is feeling defensive about it. I find I, I get I get cranky because I feel as though the establishment. Uh, which is, you know, the academy and most most the poetry scene. Like it's it's months since I've read a poem from poets.org, the American Academy of Poetry scene, that was anything resembling. A kind of lyric port of poem of much merit but all of them are absolutely on point like they're all on point about you know a kind of traumatic childhood and you know kind of exclusion and it seems to me and I get really cross about it because I think we're, we're losing connection with what poetry is and what it's for which is not to say those discourses those points those politics and that anthropology um, uh, those causes don't need to be pursued. They do, and poetry can probably pursue them. But on balance, you know, I find uh, there is a disconnect between the calibre of the politics and the, cal- the calibre of the, uh, the poem. But I love what you say about you know, materialism. In one sense, I am a materialist, and that is that I believe, uh, believe as an article of faith, really, in the physic- physicality of the human body and of the world outside the head. Uh, you know, the, the more than merely human world, architecture and uh the senses, and poetry for me fails, too, if it doesn't engage the senses and doesn't yes. remember the world, uh, mm. beyond the concepts uh, in our heads, so I guess I'm a, I'm an, I'm, I think poetry's always done that, but I, I'm with William Carlos Williams when he says, no ideas but in things, and of course, then people go, but hang on, Mark, and read my poem, and I'm quite bardic, like I also, like I, I do quite like a poem that uh, that has something to say, but if you're going to say it and, uh, you know, a kind of call to action, then the challenge is to, uh, is to not fall out of the lyric realm with that. In other words, keep mm. your rhythm and find a metaphor and uh, make an utterance that... Can be understood at least three different related ways. Well,
0: and in in a simplistic way, I, I suppose you could see two major camps in poetry is is well, one is that sort of metaphorical sort of Leon William Carlos work, Williams inspired um, notion that you mentioned before. You know, and again, it gets back to your poem about the embodiment of um, of ideas in 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 living creatures, and how that actually in its in its own way does work. It's I mean, poetry is a mystery, isn't it? a very powerful device, but it is—it's uh, it, about narrative, it's about story, it's—it's a—you know—it sits in the material world, very, in a very discordant, sort of uncomfortable, refreshing sort of way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think people—I think
1: people kind of hate on poetry because they know it's dangerous and powerful. So, Artemy kind of me kinda likes that.
0: Yes. It's interesting because I've got quite a few, um, well, a lot of materialist friends. Me, I'm sort of maybe sitting somewhere else. But I think, yeah, talking poetry and, and and talking in this sort of realm does, yeah, it elicits uncomfortable notions in people. I
1: think it does. It does really unsettles people. Even to mention the S word, the spiritual word, in any Australian context, um, particularly an academic one, uh, is to get all sorts of strange looks. So I I've been at pains to develop ways of saying what I think that that might be about. Um, and one thing I think the spiritual means to me is that refusal, a resistance against anything reductive. And any anything that is ugly in its utterance is bound to be wrong, is <laughs> another thing. And a fair bit of what the materialists have to say just sounds really ugly and inadequate to me. I don't know if you know the Canadian writer Jan uh, Zwicky. Jan, oh, yeah. Jan's got a book called, I've got actually up there on my shelf, I've got Wisdom and Metaphor. And another book of hers is called A Lyric Philosophy. She was a, uh, she's retired now from that. She's a poet full time. But she says effectively, you know, that what we've lost is a sense of what the lyric Means what the lyric is as a discourse, as a set of values, and as a way of proceeding to have a a conversation, and it's many things. Of course, it it's the musical. So to emphasise, as you have done, your apprehension of the uh, rhythm and the musicality uh, in my work is to say something about its its lyricism. But it's more than that. It's a philosophical thing, of course. That in many ways music is the means
0: Mm.
1: to get the lyric. data, if you like, the lyric data of existence, uh, acknowledged and, and voiced without kind of killing it off.
0: Well and I think that's it. the thing, isn't it, I mean I'm attracted to poetry because it's a vehicle that doesn't necessarily give answers, it opens questions. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a springboard, it takes you on a journey, it, it challenges you and it can change from day to day, you know, and I'm sure you've done this where you open up a poem one day and you read it and then a week later it becomes something else for you and there's a mystery in that but there's something life-giving in, in that process of uncovering and, and that you have to accept on some level the uncertainty. that um, goes with that too. But, but that's, I don't know, I feel more alive in that than just putting all the ideas in boxes and saying this is how the world works. That doesn't satisfy me completely.
1: No, well, it's got to, it's got to be wrong for a start. I mean, it's just got to be wrong. We just there's hardly anything science tells us that too, doesn't it? Like you know, there's hardly anything we know for an absolute certainty. So it's very unlikely the social scientists are uh, <laughs> at Ooh. the head of the game there. I just wanted to say one thing there, James, too, because it's it is absolutely true that a good poem uh, uh, deserves and. Uh, rewards you for multiple readings and you'll get uh, different depths and ideas and suggestions from it each time. It's true of one's own work too, but there is a good kind of uh, openness and a bad kind of openness. (laughs) The the bad kind of openness is the one you know from students too, and I'm working (laughs) a lot, where you just you know like it's just incapable of actually meaning anything to anyone except the person who wrote it uh and even for them they they sometimes say oh i didn't quite know you know like what i meant and i'm going well why not you so there has to be i think in a good poem there is something you take that's substantial that Mm -hmm. kind of feels as though it can hold you uh at Mm -hmm. a first reading and maybe, maybe this is a different way of saying the same thing, you know that the poet knows, <laughs> or that they had at least some things in mind. Well, Like for example, where is this happening, and what is happening to whom, and is there a background, or, or is, how am I to imagine this? And that, that's what I meant before when I was getting at that kind of materialism. Um, yeah. I trade in my teaching with a Chinese idea called Xing, X-I-N-G, X-I-N-G we translate that as, that says effectively uh, no work of art will ever be any good if 50% of that work is not the, what they call the scene. So 50% of everything needs to be the background, if you like, poetry foregrounds, background. So that leaves you 50% for what's called the feeling, which is the ideation, of course, uh, and the plot and the narrative, what you called the story before. Uh, and, um, and something about that uh, equivalence is, is, is critical. I think it plays through litany, actually, um, where when you're reading about the fish, you you actually in yourself are feeling the thoughts and when you're hearing the thoughts you're feeling the fish and the and the tiger and so on and only when you get close to 50 50 uh it's a very practical device actually can you set up that resonance and it's a lyric resonance i think so i am a kind of spiritual materialist
0: Getting back to the, to, the, to the poem, there's a, a number of questions I would like to ask you. We sort of touched upon the idea that, so it's an ecological poem, but broadening that definition of ecology in a way, to cultural, spiritual, into the world of thoughts. But I, I suppose the question I have is, it seems like the poem sort of challenges or flies in the face of the fairly dominant idea, I'd say, in the Western world of that we are, you know, self-made people, yeah, individuals. Uh, and, we, and we should understand ourselves through our own self-actualisation, that, um, that sort of thing. Particularly, I think, in the last uh, line or two of the poem, there seems to be a very strong and powerful message about this. But I suppose I'd like to ask you, is this something you were actually intending, or have I completely missed the point here, which I well m- might have?
1: No, I'll put you out of your misery there, James. You have not missed the point. Um, and I, I didn't. I must confess I didn't overthink I didn't overthink the finish. Uh, here's another thing I suppose just to to hark back quickly to what we were saying before. A poem needs I think to be written um, w- with both heart and head and body and voice actually all things at once and if one predominates it tends to run off the rail so too much thinking disconnected from heart um, and the felt sense as the phenomenologists say, phenomenology I like, it's the one philosophical discourse I find uh, seems to speak something that resembles the, the truth. So I guess I felt like in the end I end up with the orang Yutan um, because I have before that uh, um, the end of the litany, like it's called litany and of course it lists mm. Uh, many species in danger after doing all that other work that you've described first, but then I get to the bit that goes sea otter, snow leopard, curlew, bee, divinity will be burlesque, etc, etc, and then I go back to the uh, Rangutan, which means person of the forest, which of course is quite delightful metaphorically, because we think of ourselves as people, we know that we've come, uh, in evolutionary terms, from the trees, uh, and from among the apes, and we're now putting the orangutan in great danger because of the way that we uh, so selfishly inhabit, you know, tracts of land and knock down rainforest uh, and so on. And yeah. So, is there a
0: call here to a non-anthropocentric?
1: So it all um, it all comes, I guess, from an eco from you know a, a, an ecological um, perspective on the world. Ecology is both, I guess, uh, a body of knowledge. Uh, a way of seeing that I have that I'm quite invested in. Uh, I did my doctoral work in what you would call eco criticism, and one of the ways I get a bit cross about where we've taken the cultural debates of recent years is away from the ecological. I mean, f- for goodness sake, we spent so much time trying to get the humanities to remember the earth, only to find after a couple of years of a bit of kind of a nod in the direction of the ecological, the humanities have turned back. On themselves and we can only ever consider that the human in, in, in and that you know we're great and everything <laughs> but we belong you know in the world on earth with geology and landscape so uh, you can tell I have a passion about that what ecology beyond its own um, uh, world teaches us metaphorically is that nothing is understood uh, atomically like uh, uh, in itself alone ecology offers the suggestion that we might understand some deep truths if we look for the interrelationships the relationship between and so there's an idea that is articulated i suppose at the end and I it is a call as you're suggesting that, to action that we might begin well that maybe we've wandered so far into dangerous territory for the whole planet because we lost a sense of our own belonging our own kinship and with so we
0: need to reframe the way we understand and conceptualize the world and and, and our, ourselves and our, our connection know. in you know and, our, our,
1: and our obligations and rights you know the kind of the the, the set of the, the play of obligated to, to whom and what do we owe responsibilities uh and it has been the mainstream of the we that i'm talking about uh in the in the poem there i suppose mainstream western capitalist uh thinking which has been uh which you know which uh, bulldozes tracts of land um, to make a profit and to build you know to to build dwellings for, for people but has no account to make uh, of things beyond the the human and the social it has actually no way of even valuing uh, things be, beyond uh, the human and the human that it values stri- strikes me as such an appallingly narrow understanding of what a human life is let alone a life that isn't human so yes it's a call to reconceptualize our, ourselves now and, yeah, and
0: I love that, uh, that image that you leave the poem on you know how to be it's very simple but how to be the woods not just the trees which speaks about problem with individualism and this sense of that we actually belong to a, a, a bigger other um, and we're nurtured in that space together and we're we're, we're impoverished and we atrophy if we're just some sort of lone tree in some field sort of struggling against the elements the forest is there's a richness to the forest and that's our natural setting that we should be moving towards
1: that's right so you know, as a, as a, as, a, as a, in itself of course um, as an image it's it homes us again in terms of human evolution. It's where we came from. But as a metaphor, of course, as you're picking up there, it's a, it, it says, well, how would it be if we conceptualized ourselves as a part of a whole? And what what if we, if our belonging were the whole, not the part? If we weren't just the star, but the whole constellation? If that's who we are. Uh, that puts a different spin on things in terms of what is right and what is beautiful and uh, what we are responsibilities uh, to as well as consolation it is a consoling idea I think against the predominant uh, Western view which I still have you know you can't really shake it off that we're here alone and it's at the heart of you know the epidemic of loneliness and depression in the West as well too I think is that um, the downside of self-reliance, I suppose, is that you know, in that you come in alone, you're here alone. There is no reality or me, um, me, uh, ecology of meaning beyond the confines, not even of my body, but just of my identity or this intellectual conception of oneself. That's a very lonely um, place to occupy. I've occupied it too. Most of us have Yeah, that, yeah it of and,
0: and, it's, and it often sort of lends itself to a direction of nihilism, which is yeah. fraught with problems. And so I suppose, so you're more concerned with finding a way to resist that, that pull towards nihilism, to find meaning that's more than the self. Um, I find that interesting. One of the questions I do have, though, because you've been so involved with ecology, is it? And one of the problems I see in society, and I'm not sure how you address this in this poem or elsewhere, but it's just the 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 sense of apathy and disengagement from from the actual issue and that that can be i suppose multi multi multi-layered that it could be from fatigue uh, like people's exposure to the issue it's just too overwhelming so that they disengage from that point from pain and distraction there's so i mean there's so many things but that's what concerns me sometimes with poetry and whatever that you can you can you can write poetry and it hits an audience or a, a, a demographic, a specific, but it misses fundamental cultural change if that's part of, you know, if poets are political and we actually, part of our whole gig is to create political change. How, do we, how does the message go beyond people who are already sympathetic to that? Well,
1: you know, one thing I know is that uh, if there are things that need to be said, they should be said. Silence isn't going to help in that space and despair is not really an option. So uh, there is, I remember Judy Beveridge asked me when I first was beginning in poetry, would I write poems if I knew no one would ever read them? And for a poet, that's a really simple question. The answer is just yes. So why yes? Because something is pressed, some truthfulness is pressing itself into the world through you and you know you have an obligation to get it said. Uh, what happens to it after that is beyond our control, really. But certainly, there are there are works that have changed my life and changed my, my direction. Um, so it's possible that one's own work might do that. But even if it didn't, I think something about we're back to the spiritual, and I don't want to be too mystical here. But it seems to me quantum physics tells us that you know reality is a set of uh, frequencies uh, and and uh, and vibrations and. Uh, I'd rather make a few of them good. I'd
0: rather work at the rhythm. In fact, I think <laughs> Einstein actually said that, which is quite uh, ah. controversial, uh, too. He, he talked about um, there's no material reality. It's just a weight loss, and He said a lot of sense. things, of course, across mm. the effect spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, so for that reason, too, I, I remember I was great friends with... Um, American writer Barry Lopez who died at Christmas. Barry's a nature writer some people would would know arctic dreams and, and so on. I remember early on when I was Barry's work was so beautiful uh, to me and so meaningful it, it mattered the way that a human language matters to get back to theme and a species it mattered that much and I said I remember saying to him when, when I met him Barry you know the world really is That much more beautiful because you're in it writing what you write and it's not reducible again to whether uh, anybody ever reads it it's important that we try to get people to read it of course and the way that it works is some people get not just you see you touched on some points earlier about the poem James and we talked a bit about the lyric Um, it's possible it's only possible uh, if a lyric poem uh, is written that there will be some people like you for example who who will feel that feeling that's important right there at that moment and then you go talk to your kids and teach your class and conduct yourself make some different
0: decisions. yeah so the connections we often can't can't see we, we we kind of live in hope that these things happen but I think you're right and in particular you know when I look at society I, and I think one of the biggest problems I see is with sort of rampant ego that we're because we're selves and we're Often driven by our own selfish desires, but when you get wrapped up in an idea or a poem or something that's outside you, it's big and the and the, and the idea is beautiful, and it, it almost helps you to escape the prison of yourself in a way, and get wrapped up in in something universal that's that's bigger. Dostoevsky said the world will be saved by beauty. I think in *Ruska Karamazov Oh, and really? I think that sort of notion, that and that can do work. That that pure good idea, maybe that's. The reason why we, why we do poetry, or maybe why you do poetry, in your, in your best sense, when you're, you know, we all get, all prone to ego and all the rest of it, but there is, we we know, we glimpse that, and there's a memory of it that lingers with us forever. I, I imagine. Um, mm.
1: Yeah, it's true. And uh, what you're getting at there too with Dostoevsky is is, is dead on. It's, uh, it, it's form. There are many levels of this. You know, like there there is the odd poem. Uh, that will touch hundreds of thousands or millions of people all at the same time, like that poem, which I don't think is a great poem, it's a perfectly okay poem that was uh, I've spoken at the inauguration of Joe Biden. Um, and it's Even though I've got my own small qualms with it, it's altogether a fantastic thing because many people who never read a poem were taken by that and you see them going through the sort of experience you've just described, where it's just like can't, they can't put words on why they're moved and why that makes the world more beautiful and themselves both more humble and more useful at the same time in it. But other poems will be read by just the, you know, the one person, or they'll be read a hundred years later or something. You know, like you can never know when the thing might might just work, but you do have to trust that poetry kind of matters and will okay. make the difference.
0: things we could probably pick up on too. I did want to look at, I think there's some really amazing language and I would encourage people if they get the chance you can type the name of this poem into the internet and have a look on Red Room. There's some beautiful lines I think. There's one line that says, um, every species is a world of sound, a solid form of silence said, a body of thought and with each dialect drowned each lexicon beached the world it is a universe and it goes on. But in particular, like the the alliteration and the assonance through there. A lot of your senten- sentences are word and the sounds are rich and elongated. But that when it gets the lexicon beached, that the, the, the um the consonants on the B there is it just like hit me like a train. It's it's I can I could hear that language sort of slapping down on the sand and just being going nowhere it's interesting a small phrase like that can be so powerful and so evocative uh and i suppose i would encourage yeah readers to, to really try to find that in poetry what are those little phrases little words um techniques yeah do you want to tell me about that when how did the feel when you wrote those particular words what was going on in your mind am i actually picking up on things that you actually thought in the process Oh,
1: sh- sure but they you know they they happen they happen you can you can make them happen more reliably by going to school and reading some poems and uh, working out and remembering that, you know, that assonance and alliteration and word, word play, because there's word play going on in there too. I've got oh. whales in mind, of course, a little bit of yes. Le- lexicon, yes. uh, beached and drowned. So I've got kind of stranding, stranded yeah, like an extended, um,
0: metaphor, sort of extended uh,
1: metaphor, right you know, right right to the end of it um but there is a kind of um play that that gets underway in the composition it doesn't look much like play from the outset because i'm pretty i can't like that's a very fluent line now even i can see how how that flows i'm i'm i didn't i didn't struggle too much with the poem but i can't remember that that came especially like it's not just i'm in some drug-induced stage and and, and out of clums, I actually work it quite hard, but I think what's happening is that psychologically I can through language be drawn into what I call sometimes deep speech, like a deep clean, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like deep speech and language leads you there and at trusting that all the elements of language uh, need to lead you there, not just thinking, They're not just narrative. But also, especially you know, the lyric qualities of it. Yeah, when it's you, like that.
0: That, that the, the uh, Chinese whatever word you said before, the, the thing. Yeah. So some of its landscape. Sometimes there's thinking, yeah. but there's yeah. these other moments yeah. that sort of break through, which I think is really good because there'll be you know poets who are listening to this, and sometimes you know getting um, feeling a little bit negative about their work. But and so that sort of tapestry that you're painting about um, a poem, I think, is really beautiful idea of the nuances uh that you experienced through it and, cry, cry. Uh, and also like because if that line if, if that if that caliber of line i think was through the whole thing you would just the poem wouldn't work it would, you would lose something
1: yeah no it's true actually that's the thing i had to i remember uh very early on when i um was just beginning and i, I had i think i'd, I'd won um, the gwen harwood which is a lovely uh poet prize to win for your first I love Gwen Howard but I was putting some things in the Blake. There's a Blake reference in the poem too. I'm sure there
0: is. Done. Yeah, yeah. Um, Forest of Forest, the Night.
1: Forest of the Night. Yeah. About the tiger, which is, a, you know, of course, yeah. what happens. I think in a poem is that you. I'll get back to that point in a minute. But kind of everything, if you can concentrate on craft everything that you've lived and been and thought and lost and every field of metaphor and lover you've had and whatnot kind of turns up in a way and suggests themselves as possible ways to get something said and craft is the discipline you need to focus on you can overthink all that background stuff but you almost can't overthink uh, rhythm rightness uh, beauty of rhythm mm. and uh, adequacy of sound for the the kind of uh, content. But where I was going with that is, there is it is necessary to kind of work flaws like wabi-sabi into, into art. You know the wabi-sabi mm. philosophy is uh, my next collection actually is called A Beginner's Guide and it's titled from a poem of mine called A Beginner's Guide to Wabi-sabi which is like the idea of imperfection mm. um, and there ought to be in a poem you have to have some moments where uh, it doesn't exactly go slack, but you tell a joke or uh, levity and gravity counts, or you wander off a little bit and just have an easygoing uh, line of ideation or scene well, setting. I
0: think Dickinson is a great example of that with her poetry. Such a strong rhythm in a lot of her work. But all these these weird moments that just kind of slap you on the face. Like What's a... that in for?
1: When I was entering the Blake that year, I remember I had a poem that uh, was called, uh, it's got a question in its title actually, it's called Have You Seen? Have you seen The Way the Trees? That's Clarefall Fraternity on the Mountain or however it... and, and, and a fellow poet had read it and criticised me for wandering off in the middle of the poem and it does kind of wander off a little bit but I, I, I had decided to enter four poems and that was the fifth and I left it on the desk and I went up to the house and being stubborn I thought, bugger it I like that poem <laughs> I'm going to put it in and it was the one that won the whole There well, um, you Right. so like there you go, like it yeah. might not win every year but it's it is one of the qualities that i think readers don't even know they love in a poem that actually it, it goes on a slightly weird excursion and uh, do you
0: fo- is that part of your poetic experience that sometimes you just you're doing something you go you know what i'm just going to do something that i feel really uncomfortable with i'm just going to see what bit happens bit if i do this and like I-,
1: I think of it as a strange the strange idea that you want to censor out mm. that's the one and you go hang on just hold with it stick it in you can take it out later uh, yeah it has become something I think it was a that was a critical point for me in moving from never finishing poems uh, particularly with poetry it was a thing and other work but poetry especially where I uh, had to trust that I could go with the strange thing the thing that that I was censoring out because it This is a point for our times really, I suppose, Mm -hmm. the the very thing, you touched on this before too, where you're saying something that doesn't conform with the rubric and the code Mm -hmm. of the moment, that doesn't use the appointed language, that isn't materialist, that doesn't use the word discourse uh, and meta in every other one of its pieces of phrasing, it's precisely because it doesn't that you want it, because it's likely, possibly, to be an articulation of who you alone are and that's what each reader actually is at the end of the day is someone who isn't caught by any of those categories and so if you allow that into the work I mean some of it's shit and doesn't work but um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got to give it a go I think
0: uh, otherwise the poem doesn't really fly I love the reference to forest of the night that really sort of you know, and I'm thinking I love that poem Um, It's had a big effect on me and my life. I'm thinking wonder, but I'm also thinking the terrors of industrialisation. There's so many levels that that poem sort of sort of wakes in me. But there is—I do have a question because there was a line that I just couldn't get my head around. Um, And um, it's—and what will we grasp any more of sin when all the devils that we know have slipped the earth? I actually spoke with a friend about this line, and I was—we came up with all sorts of hairbrain ideas about what it was. And I was going—is it talking about? know what's topical at the moment all these rich um millionaires wanting to fly the earth and start a new earth but that's a you know <laughs> such disregard for created world no you know, it's actually you know,
1: it's, it, it's a simpler thing james it's actually i actually had in mind the tasmanian devils Ah. Oh, so i'm oh well, there if you, you go you go back to the poem you can <laughs> see what i'm doing is I'm listing. This is me actually fulfilling the brief. The brief is right a poem that is a litany of uh, animals. So you've got elephants there and blue whales, and they're all species that are, that are endangered. So slip the earth um, is just another way to get said. You know what happens? What would think? What we'll lose? I'm thinking. You see, along these lines, I'm going. When we lose the tigers. We lose some wisdom about how to be sexy and restrained at the same time, and you know, con- constrain contained violence and the beauty mm. of that. When we lose the blue whales, what do we lose then? So my mind was thinking through, uh, trying you know, trying to articulate something will, that would be lost if a certain species was lost. Mm. And I thought devils. They're called devils, and they're called devils because of their colour and because of their behaviour. Uh, and there's a kind of naughtiness and kind of savagery on behalf of what, you know, of, of what you hunger for, but also of your family that would be lost. So you were all rather delightfully overthinking it, James, I
0: think. Yes, well, that's interesting. But it's interesting ah. that, that word devils, I think, is an immediate trigger to think of human beings. Yeah. So that's well, quite curious. I mean, but, and and I wonder the... how many people would actually read it that way and stumble on that and think this is what we what are we talking about here? But,
1: but there's a thing, too, you know, that gets back to what you said before about the, the, the poem. It's delightful that it opened up those other contemplations. Uh, uh, in,
0: in yeah, it was life. actually a fun conversation I had with this person I was, I was speaking to about it. We were talking about you know, Jeff Bezos or whatever it is, and and uh, uh, who's the other guy? Um Oh, the Virgin Tesla, yeah. Tesla guy, and um, you know, Tesla. wanting to colonise yeah. Mars, and yeah, yeah I mean yeah. it, it yeah, was yeah. a and complete it's... tangent, and yeah, really missed the mark. We thought that, but it was a fun conversation.
1: I mean, the thing is, there is there is something a bit, um, There's divination involved in poetry writing? It's um, the other term I, I'm using. I mean, forgive us all you materials out there, all of these terms, but like shamanistic in a way, and I, I think. Um, it, Seamus Heaney used to refuse to call it my poem. He would say the poem, meaning the poem that came. And I know mm. that under uh, certain kinds of analyses, that's just a mystical um, woo-woo kind of notion, but it's how it feels to me. Like you have, mm. your role is to get out of your own way, as he said, and not to stuff it up, uh, and to do the hard work of craft, application of craft, and ideation and everything else. But when you do, grace something here's another term grace grace, grace you know yeah. sometimes happens it's that which you they say you haven't earned it but in a sense you do earn as you earn grace in the presbyterian calvinist mm. tradition through prayer and it mm. works and in the buddhist tradition to in poetry it's kind of the good work of the discipline of turning up and refusing every cliche that suggests itself <laughs> to you yeah and yeah sometimes yeah. when that happens you get you get some wisdom that you didn't have. It's not—it's not an idea that that you could have come up with uh, on your own, but nonetheless, it manifests and there it is.
0: Yeah, and I—I and I know, I know that feeling writing myself, and you have those those moments. Um, it, it feels very luxurious, actually. Maybe people who, who, who don't write uh, very much don't know that there's such this really enjoyable experience when you write something and it's bubbling away, and and it seems to come quite mysteriously to you. Not always. A lot of the time, it's hard work. But um, what a joy that is, and how terribly, um, in contrast, when you actually go and put a piece of work out there, and you become self-conscious of it, how it kind of almost destroys the process. <laughs> yeah. Like the creation is very different from from audience, unfortunately. It's actually Sad, very
1: really this, I think I suppose, but it's very difficult even to ever read one of my own poems and feel as though hmm. I'd caught the poem. I, mm. I never feel as though I I quite have. And I've learned that that's just a wonderful thing. That's a good thing, I think. That is a a really really healthy, good thing.
0: thing, There's there's
1: way more there than you'll ever manage to bring to the microphone on any given uh, occasion.
0: And you get a sense of joy when people bring their own interpretations and you can see, understand and see those readings and go, wow, that's cool, You know, that's amazing
1: yeah sure of course you know we it's, it's a cliche to say humbling but it does kind of it does it does humble you to realize what's what's been achieved if i can put it yes. that way you know not yes. you've had a part in it but yeah there was something when people say you know like someone just this morning posted one of the poems from uh is it from walking underwater yet yeah, is um called when the panic uh has this beautiful sequence of um just the couplets she took the couplets and it's on um insta just on on insta it's this thing and i thought wow imagine having a life where one day actually i wrote that poem in so much pain and uh poetic craft really saved me i think as well as mm. produced a, a poem which ends up feeling quite so much more secure and sure but still humble I think not in an imagined kind of way sure mm-hmm. uh, James but uh, you yeah. know imagine living a life where you could make such a thing and then see this eventuality and let alone the thing that you've done uh, with with the work it does make you feel as though um, you've been blessed
0: Oh, well, I'm glad I'm very glad that you said that um, and look and look, that's probably a really good place for us to finish because we've been talking for over an hour now um, yeah it's been a real pleasure talking with you Mark fantastic and hopefully I'll get a chance to do another one of your poems in the future yeah I think I've got your um, one of your ex-students Ali Whitelock coming up I think, on the next interview in a couple of weeks after this this one so oh, okay. fascinating a very very different poem very very different style Yeah. but very powerful
1: and as I said to you, you know, we're not unconnected Ali a good friend and and uh, she's come into her poetic craft which is uh, you know as you say vastly different from mine but um, we've conversed about sonnets and and form and, uh, and and so on so that's a beautiful thing too isn't it how the same inspirations uh, can yield such uh, radically different um, yeah. you know, outcomes
0: yeah absolutely thank you thank you again and um, yeah Mark um, good to see you in the future
1: yeah I look forward to it
0: So it's time to wrap up this week's episode and say goodbye. Next week we'll be looking at the rather haunting poetic masterpiece The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot. To stay notified of upcoming episodes, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And of course, a beautiful video clip of today's poem, Litany Analogy, is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel. For other resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Lit Poetry has got some excellent content planned for the weeks ahead. Aside from featuring classic poems and poets from the past, every second episode in Season 2 will be interviewing a prominent contemporary poet and featuring some of their work. Indeed, for each of these poets, Lit Poetry has been hard at work producing a video poem of one of their pieces to discuss. This is a very exciting format and the discussion that springs from these audio-visual interpretations of their work should make for interesting listening. In a fortnight's time, we'll be featuring a poem by Ali Whitelock, so make sure you tune in. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for dropping by. I'll see you next time.
1: My name is Mark Tredinnick, and this is my poem, Visony an Elegy for the Children. Each tongue, it has been wisely said, speaks galaxies. And when a language dies, a world, and all that has no other being elsewhere, fails. A silence falls where there was song, where there was something known no other lyric grasps. Every species is a world of sound, a solid form of silence said a body of thought. And with each dialect drowned, each lexicon beached, the world that is a universe of all these knowing realms knows less. The living world grows less alive. And we, who cannot find a patch of ground, we do not need to claim, a wildness we do not need to tame, fall deeper alone, the thicker we crowd the biomes the thinner we shave the ways there are of being on this earth. And thought that flew like shorebirds once around the globe, refusing a single idiom or tide, idols, mean, abstracted streets, and lives off scraps the sated throw away. Our words are made of plastic now and end up in the sea, where stocks of wisdom, overfished and toxic with cliche, dwindle and cease so what will there be left for us to say by way of remorse what elegy excuse or prayer when the sands along subtropic shores have grown so warm that no more male turtles hatch and make it to the sea and who will we be our language atrophied a little more when Norfolk parakeets run out of trees to roost and fledge And what will we grasp any more of sin when all the devils that we know have slipped the earth? And who will teach desire, grace, or passion, poise, when nothing burns the forests of the night? And when the last savanna elephant has scattered all the bones, what will we recall of grief when our turn comes to let our dear ones go? And how will all the plastic that will never go extinct school the seas in sanctity? What sense will awe begin to make when no blue whales swim the world around? And will our minds remember how to slow, how speeding, chill, when all the whale sharks have passed? Sea otter, snow leopard, curlew, bee. Divinity will be burlesque joy will be a sham when all these bodhisattvas of the floating, hungry, thrumming world have left. O person of the forest, orangutan, who might be any one of us who came down once from boughs, teach us, while there are still woods to be, how to be the woods, not just the trees.
0: You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.